Hello, and welcome from the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn in Ontario, Canada. Join us this week as Pastor John Blackman shares from the book of 1 Corinthians. There are uh, some passages of Scripture that are easier to preach at someone else's church. And uh, one example of those, we're not looking at it today, uh, is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, which reads, Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. You know, that's the kind of one you usually do when you're a guest speaker or you're uh, preaching at an ordination or something. Imagine just that passage. If, you know, obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. If every time your pastor sent out an email or a letter, he put that scripture reference at the bottom under his name. Or, uh, you know, I'm wondering if uh, in seminaries, you know, neighborhoods with seminaries, if it's a popular tattoo option. I got a slide for that, Cindy. Yeah, you know, I wonder if that's like a popular tattoo option. That'd be a little strange. You know, if you're at a campfire and you're all sharing your favorite Bible verse, you probably would hope that your pastor would say something like, oh, James 4, 6, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up rather than Hebrews 13, 7, obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. I kind of jest because in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul kind of practically tattoos the Corinthian church a little bit. Uh, and here's a little bit of a bridge that we're going to try to cross today, which we, if you, if you haven't picked it out, we kind of try to cross this bridge every Sunday, and that's the bridge between what did the Bible author mean and, and what does it mean, you know, for us today. And uh, so when we talk about uh, the context of a passage, usually we just look at everything that the author has been writing in an epistle right up until the passage we get to. So we're pretty good at that. Okay, well, all of the things Paul's been talking about, we bring those with us into 1 Corinthians chapter 4. But context also involves what he's going to be talking about. And I think that's really important this morning. In, verse, in chapters 1 to 3, Paul's been reminding the Corinthian Christians of who they really are, who they really are. They think they're really something, and Paul's kind of reminding them that they think they're the wrong kind of something. He, he uh, kind of is uh, challenging them that some of the things that they've been doing are actually beneath them, considering if you look in the first paragraph of chapter one, the high calling that every Christian has. Um, the way, for instance, in chapters two, one, two, and three, the way they've been elevating different leaders and teachers against one another and identifying themselves in that way, that's kind of demeaning to themselves, and it's even demeaning to their teachers. What do I mean by that? Well, we'll do a little sidetrack here, and we'll think about the idea um, of how we do that with our children. I've mentioned this many times in different messages and contexts and sermons. I've said, you know, um, we can... uh, Make, when we make our children the ultimate focus of our lives, which is very tempting to do, when we, when we make ch- our children the ultimate focus of our lives, we actually distort them and we distort ourselves. So how, how do we do that? Because that's something they were never really meant to be, idols, and we're doing something we were never really meant to do, worship them. You know, we did a whole series on idolatry once, and, and uh, the punchline was usually we become what we worship. So now, if I was going to commence to do a sermon on child rearing after dropping that little uh, wisdom bomb on you, you might expect me to clarify, well, then what is the right way 
to think about your children? What is the right way for a Christian to esteem, respect, admire, consider their children? Because they certainly are valuable. And, and how is a parent to relate to them in such a way that's forming for them and yourself rather than deforming? And that would save you a lot of time later on doing the reforming. Um, our author believes that, uh, I, I just said this, uh, I just thought of this morning. One author actually thinks that teenagers are God's way to point out to you all the things you missed when they were younger. But that's another whole sermon. Uh, what Paul's trying to do in our chapter this morning for this church and their relationship with their leaders, um, something that he's been getting to for a couple of chapters now, um, is, is try to explain how they are to esteem and see them and how they're to relate to them. And it, but it's not the end of the story, by the way, anything that I'm going to say today, because this is just chapter 4 of 16 chapters. If you cheat ahead, I talked about the, the context of what Paul's going to start talking about. If you've got your Bibles with you, you can grab one off the table at the back. If you start cheating ahead into chapter 5, 6, and on, you're going to see Paul's about to begin a section of direct examinations of some pretty serious problems such as sexual immorality, minimization of sexual immorality, lawsuits between church members, definitions and instructions for marriage, including its more intimate details, idolatry, uh, and differences between believers in some gray areas and how they're supposed to handle those things. So he's about to start talking about some pretty important things, and before he does, he wants them to have a right idea of how they understand his words and who he is and how they relate to him. So let's read the whole chapter, and uh, I'm going to be kind of bouncing around in this chapter today, so I'm, I won't, uh, in the usual way, just start from verse 1 and work my way down, but I'll definitely do that while I'm reading it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels, as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty, we're in rags, we're brutally treated, we're homeless, 
We work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We've become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I've sent, you, sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon. If the Lord is willing, then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you, what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? If I can flip back to the parenting idea, Paul uses the parental relationship in this chapter as a metaphor and, uh, interestingly, even as a style. And the style part's kind of controversial because um, he's seemingly a lot more comfortable with sarcasm than most of us would think uh, would be appropriate for an apostle. Uh, I sometimes will run an email by uh, the rest of uh, your elders you know, especially when it's a response to something sensitive or, or a Dear John exit letter or something like that, for the very reason that we want the tone of that letter to come across, you know, fine-tune the language so it doesn't just make things worse. Um, but Paul may be writing this with a help from a guy named Sosthenes. We'll read back in the very opening verses of this book. He may have a helper helping him write this, but apparently Sosthenes doesn't seem to be much of a sarcasm filter. Parents of teenagers, you know, Paul could probably relate to how you feel some days. He had days like that. Take a look in verses 6 to 7, you know. He's using irony. He's saying to them, you're puffed up because of your giftedness. Like, that's kind of sort of like bragging about being left-handed or a couple inches taller than your brother or something. It's not exactly something you can take credit for. So he's saying it's kind of ironic that you find or feel yourself to be superior to others because of your gifts. Like, that's not something you can really take care of take uh, um, credit for. And then he changes gears without even touching the clutch, and he grinds right into sarcasm. Let me, let me reread 8 to 10 with some tone. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. You know, that sounds something like you might say at work to the intern who's starting to give you instructions, and you just say to him, hey, now that you're the boss, can I get a raise? Like, that's the kind of uh, sarcasm Paul's kind of using here. He says, for it seems to me that God's put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as humans. We're weak, but you're strong. You're honored. We're dishonored. He's laying out some sarcasm here in his argument. Again, we're a little uncomfortable with that. I, I don't recommend you use this as Oh, this is going to be now my justification to be a sarcastic parent. But what's really going on here? Then he moves on to the time-honored tradition of parent guilt in verses 14 to 15. And he has this conversation, you know, you, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. 
Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers. In Christ, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Uh, He has like in verses 16 to 17 that you should know better than this section. For this reason, I sent sent you Timothy. He'll remind you of my way of life. You know, like this isn't how you were raised. He's reminding them. And then uh, all the way down to verse 21, it really has a I'll give you something to cry about vibe or don't make me come down there. Um, shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? So what's going on? If you went through all of Paul's letters and all of the things that he writes in the New Testament, you'll find that he uses a ton of descriptive metaphors to describe himself in different ways to different churches that he writes to. Um, in, in, when you put them all together, you, you get the, a picture that Paul is not a heartless, uh, um, cold autocrat in his leadership. Because he'll use in other letters, um, they, they're all kind of emotionally vulnerable kind of descriptors that he uses. And, and he, he uses a lot of family relationships. So for Paul, his leadership isn't just a family business. He sometimes refers to himself in his, in his writings as a sibling, Sometimes, like in our passage here today, like a father, sometimes a wet nurse who breastfeeds, sometimes an anxious mother. All of them are intimate, involved descriptors. And in a family, there are roles involved in bringing people to maturity. And we call that discipleship in uh, church lingo. Now, sometimes we, like, too strongly just turn that into a program when I think it's really meant to be as natural as everyday life in your regular family. You know, I'm, I'm kind of sorry for you if you grew up in a home where there was a parenting program ripped right out of a book in place and, and you were just kind of blended like muffins that were supposed to turn out if the right recipes and temperatures were put in place. But I also feel bad for you if you were raised in a house where parents didn't take their responsibility to guide and direct you in any way as well. So, so, so both of those things are, are in a part of a natural healthy home. Paul's talking about that here. Um, He had a vision of mature adulthood. And he defines his role here as a discipler. If you think about the word discipler or discipleship, it shares a lot of letters with the word discipline. Right? So you really are a discipler of your children. You're, You're discipling them. You're teaching them the disciplines, like how to get up how to make a bed, how to show up to school on time, how to get their homework done, how to get their homework done right, <laughs> you know, how to clean their room, how to clean their room right. You're, you're giving them a lot of life skills, and, and that's all discipline and discipling. And, and in the spiritual world, we're to do that in the family of faith, too. So he kind of says, I'm, that's why I'm sending, you know, imitate me, and that's why I'm sending you Timothy, so Timothy can help you intimate me, uh, imitate me. Now, If we just take this chapter all by itself, we think, well, Paul seems to feel he has it all together. I just said last week, you know, that a church's perspective isn't that they have it all together. It's that God has it all together somewhere, and he's helping, he's calling them to be part of his program to make all things right everywhere. But Paul's contrasting how I live and what I do with this this opinion and attitude and the worldly perspectives on leaders that they've been kind of soaked in and, and displaying. 
And Paul's asking them to consider, to, to esteem, to look at him in the right way. He's claiming in this that uh, he, he spent all this time just deconstructing the vote for Paul, vote for Apollos moment, movement, and he's claiming that his instruction isn't based on the standards of the surrounding culture. He wants to feed them from a different trough. And the way they've been acting and the way they've been considering leaders is showing some strange fruit. And he's tracing it back to their source diet. Paul's claim to be an expert builder of foundations in our message last week. Well, here he considers himself somewhat of a nutritionist. How does he want them to think of them? Well, before he went into sarcastic parent mode, back in verse 1, he said, this then is how you ought to regard us. Servants of Christ. So when Paul says, do it my way, in verse 16, therefore I urge you to imitate me, would a servant of Christ walk in a way that reflected primarily an I did it my way kind of um, theme or uh, some kind of free agency? Or would it reflect somebody who considers Jesus the center of my life? We use that vision statement here for our church as we want our congregation to be a place that displays Jesus as the center of all life. And Paul's saying a leader would display Jesus as the center of his life. If you look at uh, Paul's uh, metaphors as he fleshes this out, he says, servants entrusted with the mysteries of God. So you're entrusted with mysteries that belong to someone else. And that mystery isn't so mysterious because he already spelled it out in chapters one to three. It's the glorious gospel of Christ, Christ crucified, risen from the dead, that he was Jesus Messiah. But he says something interesting. He says every steward or servant is accountable. That makes sense. If you've been given, if you're a servant and you've been made steward of mysteries, then you are accountable for those mysteries. Think of the way we use our word account. It, it, as I thought about it this week, it's, it's a word that's used in so many different ways and, and right across all kinds of parts of life. You, know, you, you have a bank account. You might have a sales account. Like you may have been given the Eastern Canada account. But in every use of the word, and believe me, in Merriam-Webster, there are incredible amount of examples and usages. In every example of the word account, something is being counted. Something's being counted. What's being counted and, and who's doing the counting? That's what Paul's trying to clarify here. If, uh, if I reread the, the first uh, five verses here, you can see that they're, they're like, it's like a landmine of possibilities of abuse. Uh, what then? This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries of Christ. Now it's required that those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before its appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what's hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. What's the landmine there? Um, uh, well, like some people uh, feel Paul saying, you know, because he's an apostle, he answers to no one. Uh, you know, he, is, he, is he pulling out his apostle badge here and saying, I don't answer to you. 
I don't care what you think. Uh, well, obviously that's not. Interestingly, he even says he doesn't even answer to himself. We've been talking about conscience in our catechism the last couple of weeks. And Paul's saying, even if my conscience is clear, that's completely beside the point. Because I'm not going to be rewarded someday on judgment day um, based on a future conscience uh, scan result. He says, it's the Lord who judges me, therefore judge nothing before it's time. How God works out his plan while we steward his mystery is really pretty much somewhat a mystery. However, that there will be an evaluation of ministry is not a mystery. It's clear. Um, you, so when we say lines like, well, who are we to judge, that's completely different from saying it's too soon to judge. There is going to be a final judgment. There has to be if God's good, if God's a good and just God. And it's not just about punishing wrongdoers either. There's a broken world that needs to be put right. Uh, Timing-wise, we often think, well, you know, I look at the situation here and I know what God should be doing right now. And we're eager to give him advice and tell others what to do about it too. And, and Paul's trying to convince the Corinthians to let go of a half-pagan view of the world and replace it with a full-orbed Christian view of the world. Commentator Tom Wright wrote this. They seem to think that their new status as Christians, coupled with the wisdom that they have, that they've achieved in the eyes of the world, gives them the right to pass judgment on people, including Paul himself. And in this case, Paul doesn't measure up to what they feel a full-fledged Christian leader should be like. Very well, they will pass judgment on him. But Paul's pointing out the, the point of being an apostle isn't worldly acclaim or acceptance or approval. They're merely stewards of a message. And, and their role is to do what they've been told to do with that message. What's required is to be faithful to what's been entrusted to them as apostles. There's another metaphor and picture here uh, that's really kind of interesting that we can just skip right by in verse 9. Um, that's all of this. Uh, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We've made a, been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels, as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ. But you are so wise in Christ. What's Paul getting at here beside the, the sarcasm I already pointed out? Well, Roman victory parades. Uh, in the first century, as Rome took over the entire world, you've you got to realize that, wow, for so much of human history, and, and, and especially before the, the advent of Christ, and I think the influence of the church on, on world history, it sure gets a lot of knocking, like the Christians have done nothing but make things worse. Well, try living in the first century. This was a brutal, power, warrior culture for centuries. We, we, we worry about our, our war in Ukraine, and rightly so right now. Just imagine that that was every city, every place in the world, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of violence, a lot of... You know, governments were, were like totally power-hungry and would flex their might in order to feel safe in such a violent world. And part of that, since there was no 24-hour news cycle, and if, you're, if your city-state or your country's army headed off to go and fight off a, uh, an attempted overtake or they went off to overtake the next kingdom, 
you didn't really know what was going on. So when the battle was over, if your country won, or if your army won, there were these victory arches. Everybody, can everybody picture the princess gates at the CNE? Like, it's a pretty impressive kind of gothic structure right now. This big giant arc where, you know, if you're going down the lakeshore and you have to snake around the CNE grounds, there's the beautiful big princess gates. There were gates like that at cities. And here's what would happen. Now that they've won the army, now that they've won the battle and the soldiers are all coming back, there'd be a big parade. And the parade was propaganda to show your own country who's in charge. Because your army's been away, your king and government's been distracted, and maybe things are getting a little... We just won this battle. We're going to remind everybody who's in charge. So the king, who was probably on a couch during the entire battle, he gets his shiny armor out of, uh, out of storage and puts all that on because he's going to ride through first on a big, beautiful white steed. And, and interestingly, like uh, the guy after a football game with no dirt on his uniform, he's just gleaming. And he's the most important person. So the king rides through. His generals ride through. They've had time to get fed and get their wounds cleaned up and get their dress uniforms on. And they would come through, and chariots would come through, and the people in the city are watching this come through. Look, we're coming back. That didn't hurt. We're, in, we're large and in charge, and maybe some, some wagons full of treasure and, and gold and uniforms and sacred items that they've taken from the defeated army, and then regular soldiers, you know, uh, and then there'd be this procession of prisoners in chains, and they were people who were worth more alive than dead temporarily. And they would often be the defeated king, his humiliated soldiers, maybe some of the harem, maybe princes and the royal family, and they would be dragged in at the end of the procession, basically as a way to show the guys at the front, they're the ones, they're the ones that are running the show here. These are the weakest humiliated, they're fools, clowns. They're just like, scrape them off the plate and that's what would end up usually happening to them. Now they're gonna be characters in the uh, Colosseum and people will get a laugh out of how these guys that thought they could defeat us are now entertainment. Paul describes himself in that way. He says, in the view of the world, those of us that are in the community of faith and leaders by the perspective of the world, we're at the back of the line and look like fools, like the ones with the least amount of power. In this picture that he has, all the people standing on the curb watching all of this happen, that's like the world. Paul even describes it this way. Before the entire world, that's how we look. And from their perspective, the wisdom of the world, from their perspective, this is how things really are. The, the mighty, the powerful, the rich, the wealthy, the guys at the front of the line, that's who are running the show. But Paul has been teaching all through this letter, that's not the real wisdom. Now you apply that to our Savior, who must have looked, and as they told the story of the gospel, must have sounded like as much of a joke. He's like humiliated, defeated carpenter from Galilee. He's the Messiah. He's the hope of all the world. Oh, and he was killed on a Roman cross, that kind of humiliation. And Paul says, yes, that's the power of God, that message. Whether people see it for what it is or not, incredible picture. Um, 
got lost there in my notes, and a sermon broke out. Broke back at verses 1, 2, and 3 of our chapter today. Uh, the ones who look like fools now will be seen as something later. That's Paul in all this talk about fools. Uh, you consider us fool, you should become a fool like us. Like Paul's recruiting fools here in this story. Yeah, join the fool chain, not the food chain, the fool chain, because in the end, when everything is made right, it's going to be completely upside down. He says in verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Some people have tried to use that line to say, you know, teaching, preaching, that's not really what matters, but manifestations of power should be what we're after. More on that later when we get to the topic of spiritual gifts and people getting all proud about even miraculous gifts and all of that. Because Paul's already gone on record in this letter as saying in, in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, take a look at chapter 1, verse 23, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, just to highlight a few. Paul's been saying pretty clearly words do matter. Words do matter a lot, just not the words that they may be counting as the ones that matter. So it's been a long haul to this point. You know, what does he mean and what does it mean? Let me just close in explaining this. First of all, Paul was an apostle, capital A, apostle. So to jump directly from the apostle Paul to Stephen, Andrew, Scott, Tiago, and John is, is badly simplistic. Paul had a unique calling. You know, Paul went somewhere on his own in a place like Corinth and started preaching in synagogues and preaching this powerful gospel message until some people started coming to faith by the power of gospel. Once he had a handful of believers, then he would start a church. And, and in, in Paul's mind, if you really get into his teaching and his vision, that's the goal of evangelism. If you wonder, when's evangelism finished for Paul? A church has been established. But now the rest of the Great Commission go and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. Now the discipleship part kind of rolls in. Um, Paul was going to be judged by that. Uh, he, when a church was established, he was done. Um, when, when he built a community, that community were meant to display that Jesus is Lord of all. Somewhere when evangelism has been completed, there's a group of people displaying in the city that they live in that Jesus is Lord of all. You imagine the audacity of a local church if on their church sign or wherever they had their slick vision statement on a banner, it said, Jesus is Lord of all. Take us for existence. Uh, for take us for example. Jesus is Lord of all. Take us, for instance. That would be a bold church vision statement. And there's our calling. To somehow display Jesus as the center of all life is to display him as Lord, which means we're under him. We're in submission to him. So far, uh, Paul's been building a case verse by verse, line by line, saying that anything and everything that damages a local church community's ability to make such a claim is to be taken seriously. We're going to find out in the chapters to come they're to be rejected, they're even to be removed. So far, that's been what Christian wisdom really is, what God's pattern of leadership is, how teachers are judged and by whom. 
and how crucial it is in Paul's writing here to build a structure that's right for the foundation that's laid. Next week, starting next week, we're going to jump into some really difficult ethical problems. And again, they're shown to be the fruit of a local church eating from the wrong trough. Uh, and, and the strange fruit is being formed by the wrong messages, the, the, the behaviors, the what's going on don't fit the foundation. So, so that's part of it. Paul was an apostle. So what we do, secondly, though we're not apostles, we won't be judged by in exactly the same way as apostles are. Paul was flexing the importance of his authority as an apostle before he gets into the nitty-gritty of various sin issues that, that this church was mired in. And when Paul does, his teaching on these issues now becomes apostolic preaching for us. While we won't be judged in the same way Paul is, I believe we will be judged by what we've done with the message that he's given us, what he left behind for us to build on. See, Paul's message didn't die with Paul because it wasn't Paul's message. He was just a steward of the great mystery of this gospel message. Um, if you look at uh, verses 11 to 13, you see that he suffered greatly for this assignment. For his account, Paul had been given the gospel to the Gentiles' account, and he suffered greatly for it. Uh, we were given now the gospel account, which implies accountability. It, we didn't make up the message either. We received it from God by his grace. We love that part. Man, salvation's pretty fantastic. Talk about buy low, sell high from our perspective. But we've been given this account, which means accounting. Let me close with a bright, shiny blessing that makes all of this, ironically, seem hopeful. You know that one guy in class when you were back in college or high school that uh, would ask the question, and with, he was always oblivious to how bad the question came across when he put his hand up and said, is this on the exam? You know, and everybody rolls their eyes and, you know, the teacher dies a little bit inside when he asks that question. But as much as we might make fun of him or look down on him, we all want to know the answer to the question. Is it on the exam? Um, Paul writes the answer. Uh, did, did you miss it back in verse 5? Um, he says, how does he end verse 5? At that time, each will receive their praise from God. It is on the exam. It has, how does Paul end it? Each will receive his praise from God. I'm going to finish this today with a long quote from uh, Paul Gardner's commentary on 1 Corinthians. He wrote this, The judgment day is often regarded in Scripture as a fearful day. Even in this passage, there's been talk of the danger of self-deception and the judgment of God on such people. Yet Paul also sees it as the day when God's faithful people will stand before a God who is faithful and who blesses his people so that each one will receive his praise before God. Understanding the balance between fear and great joy at the thought of the day of the Lord is difficult. He writes, warnings are warnings and must never be understated. 
and they're here in this epistle in abundance. However, God's people are entirely redeemed and justified by God's grace. They labor at the work to which God has graciously called them and for which he has graciously given them gifts. They work with the gift of God's spirit, guiding and enabling in power day by day. And here's the part that's on our slide. Therefore, it is good for Christians, and especially for leaders who view themselves as insignificant and unsuccessful, to remember that it's not the judgment of this age that matters, but it's the standing that we have as God's people before the Lord that matters. He has promised that each one will receive praise before God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's so hard for us to have a divine perspective on our everyday lives, in our experience in church life, um, in our experience as disciples. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would continue to uh, form in us the fruit of a healthy diet of the wisdom of God. Continue to bring us back to Jesus and Jesus crucified and risen. Help us to continue to fight away the wisdom of this world that pressures us to think there has to be more to it than that. We need to add to that. We need to alter it. We need to make it more palatable. When you've told us already in, in this letter to the Corinthians that it's the power of God, not only for our salvation, but for our glory. Lord, help us to remember where we stand in that parade that the Apostle Paul was picturing. And sometimes it can be painful to be at the back of the line, feeling and looking like fools in the eyes of the world but we pray you would give us great hope in the day that we would receive our blessing from you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us. For more information, please visit brooklynrbc.ca. The link is also in our bio. On behalf of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn, we pray you have a blessed week.